Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. In this week's episode, your Harry Potter friends will be getting sloshed and gossiping inside the three broomsticks <laughs> as we discuss chapter 10 of Prisoner of Azkaban, the Marauder's Map. I didn't write that. I think Micah did. Uh, but it is a very big chapter. <laughs> this is a big chapter. Why do you naturally assume that it was me? Well, I will just say I feel awkward sometimes introing with somebody else's script because, like, I, I, I don't want to steal your work. You well, know? we can work mm. together next time so you feel a little bit more comfortable. Oh, I was comfortable. <laughs> I liked it. Are we really able to get sloshed and gossip in the three broomsticks? Because we did not get our permission slip signed. Well, we can just hide behind a Christmas tree that right. one of the four of us can move in front of us, and I think we'll be okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. It is uh, morning for all of us, but I suppose <laughs> it is five o'clock somewhere. Probably in London. <laughs> Probably there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Four o'clock. Five. By the time we're finished with the episode, it'll be five o'clock over in England. Hey, it is June, and that means it's Pride Month, and we just wanted to acknowledge that the Harry Potter fandom has always been an incredibly inclusive place for LGBTQ plus people. Speaking as a gay person myself, I can't imagine what my life would have been like without the support of the Harry Potter community when I was coming out, and I will forever be grateful for these books and this community So to everyone in the fandom, thank you for creating a wonderfully inclusive and accepting space. And to anyone listening who might be exploring their identity, just know that the people in this fandom, including everyone here at MuggleCast, will always have your back. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. If you enjoy MuggleCast and think your other Harry Potter friends might as well, tell a friend about the show. We'd also appreciate if you left us a review in your favorite podcast app. And we would also appreciate your support on Patreon. And we have exciting news on that front. We are now offering a seven-day free trial so you can check out everything we have to offer on our Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash MuggleCast and you can sign up for a trial of our Dumbledore's Army or Slug Club level tiers and you will get access to everything we have to offer for a week. And we're really excited about this opportunity to let people dip into the Patreon uh, with no obligation. And after the seven days, your subscription will begin unless you cancel, which, of course, you're free to do if you don't like it. But we would really appreciate it if you continued. So do check that out. Free trials now available on Patreon. And our physical gift announcement is coming soon. We have a pretty sweet Patreon, everybody. We send out a physical gift to Slug Club level patrons every year. And uh, we're not ready to announce it yet because we're waiting to get a sample. But once that sample comes in, we will announce it and take pictures of it and show it off on social media. But that is one of many benefits you can get at our Patreon. I think as a hint, we can just say it'll be great for certain months of the year. (laughs) Will it be more warming than a pint of butterbeer? I think so. That's a good hint. Yeah. Yes. Heartwarming. Fair to say it could come into use in this chapter Mm. at some point. Definitely. Definitely. It is helpful for the place where most heat escapes from your body. Okay. Well, that pretty much gives it away. (laughs) (laughs) But what if they don't know where that is? (laughs) They can Google. I I hear people at home being like, hey, Alexa. (laughs) Yeah. Objectively, I'm so proud of all the gifts we've done. I think they've been timely. I think they've been interesting um, and good quality. Durable. Durable. 
All right. Well, without further ado, let's jump into chapter by chapter. And like I said, we are discussing chapter 10 of Prisoner of Azkaban, the Marauder's Map. And we'll start, as always, with our little mini game here, the seven word summary. Secrets are divulged via professors drinking butterbeer. Okay. (laughs) All right. They're not actually drinking butterbeer, but we're trying to keep this family friendly here, you know? Oh. What are they drinking? and... Yeah. Gilly water. Gilly, gil, oh, gilly water is the most scandalous drink of all. McGonagall, really. <laughs> Hagrid got four tankards, I think, of what he, uh, he was drinking. Yeah. Which is, you know, he's a big guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he can handle it. I want to remind everybody, especially patrons, you have the opportunity to vote on all of our seven word summaries. Somebody commented that fewer people are voting uh, than ever. Usually we get like... 20 odd people. Now we have like 10 or 15. So over on the uh, patrons Facebook group, Michael has been posting each week's seven word summary uh, for people to vote on and the links to that. So be sure you're doing that. Let us know how we're doing, because at the end of the book, we go back and we redo the ones and we look at those votes and we tally them up and we're hard on ourselves and it's wonderful. So please tell us what you think of this week's, which I loved. I thought that was great. I actually like this one a lot. It may be my favorite of the third book so far. This is my favorite chapter of the third book so far. And in fact, I think this is one of the best chapters of all of the books, if not the best, if not my top one. Things really take a turn in this chapter. This is when stuff starts getting real, Real. I think. Real. Yep. Well, let's get to it here. And I will say I really enjoyed being on the Marauder's Map I know that's the title of this chapter, but if you go to Harry Potter, the exhibition in New York City, you will get the chance to pop up on the map as well. That's fun. And I will end my plugs for the exhibition (laughs) there. Uh, So this chapter starts off with Harry still in the hospital wing. And we learned in the last chapter that his Nimbus 2000 has been completely shattered. Harry, however cannot seem to let it go. He's holding on to it. He's sleeping with it every night. That's so sweet. I was wondering, did we have a similar experience growing up where we held on to something for so long, despite it being damaged, or maybe it got really old and ragged because it meant something to us, because it had value. And clearly Harry's Nimbus 2000 means a lot to him. It was his really introduction into Quidditch. And it was a gift from somebody who, you know, probably doesn't get as much shine as she should. Yeah, I mean, I think growing up, we had stuffed animals that we would cling on to. At least I would. I had a Barney, the dinosaur stuffed animal I was absolutely obsessed with. I actually still have that stuffed animal. My my parents made sure we held on to that. A broom is a funny thing to like, you said hold on to at night, right? Like sleep with at night. I was embellishing a little bit. Oh, but, yeah. But I, I don't think he did that. I was, yeah. I, I, I forgotten that. Maybe I should take that vibrating broomstick and try to sleep with it one night and see how it goes. Oh, yeah. Really try and feel how Harry felt. Yeah, cuddle with it. 
batteries off. I don't want it to like explode in the middle of the night or something. Uh-huh. This come this brings to mind like I had um childhood like blankets that I was wrapped in as an infant which were then comfort blankets as a kid growing up and I slept with those under my pillow long since. I mean, I think at one point they just turned to dust. Um but uh they certainly were very ragged and I had a sentimental attachment to them. Uh, as a result of that, I think lots of kids carry blankets and things like that. But but for me, it, it there were years where I didn't carry them, but they were still under my pillow safely. And I just felt comfort, I guess, when thinking about them, look like trying to remember what my feelings were. But yeah, largely comfort just knowing they were there. Yeah, I'll say as an adult, I still have uh, an approximately 60 year old stuffed animal that belonged to what? my mom when she was a kid. Um, she gave it to me when I was little. It's it's a little stuffed animal dog. And the thing is practically disintegrating. Um, like it lost an eye. It has an ear falling off. Um, it has a hole in the belly and the fluff is coming out. Uh, but I have no intention of throwing it out. There's too much uh, nostalgia <laughs> going on there. Sentimental so, um, value. Huh? Yeah, exactly. So his, his name is his Droopy. Droopy, you know, sounds very, appropriate. Very appropriate for his current. Set him up for state. success with that name. <laughs> He's gonna live forever, <laughs> Droopy. Uh, so he'll he'll live on my uh, on my uh, dresser for the rest of his days. <laughs> you should take him to Al of Al's Toy Barn in Toy Story Two to restore him. What a reference! I was going to say, oh, Laura, you can like. You, maybe even surprise your mom. I know Mother's Day is just passed, but like there have got to be places that will like rejuvenate him, fill him with stuffing. It's exactly that sequence, Andrew, that like warms my heart so much. The, the <laughs> making him. It's a good sequence. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And quick correction. It wasn't Al who personally restored him, but he brought him to that old guy who oh, did the, the restoration. I just it's coming back. You can't rush on. <laughs> Well, this took a really great turn. I wasn't expecting uh, that we would uh, figure out the future of Droopy on this episode of MuggleCast. Back to um, the the chapter here, which we've said is very big, and yet we're taking lots of detours already. Harry's experience also reminded me of like if we lost something as a kid, just like we misplaced it and never found it again. I'm still upset that when I was a young boy, I lost my Game Boy Pocket and everything with it. The games, the carrying case. I don't know what happened to it. Maybe it was stolen. Yeah, it, it could have been stolen. But I was so upset because I was obsessed with that thing as a kid and all my games gone. It was just like devastating. And I looked for it so hard. I kind of had a couple theories where it would be. Looked and looked and looked. Could never find it again. And yeah, it was very sad. And I didn't get another one until like the next gen Game Boy came out. So I was like reeling from that for a really long time. This sounds like something my parents would have done if they thought I was playing too much Game Boy. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. really, though. Like they, Lost. Yeah, lost. Um, Air I wasn't a kid, but I, I misplaced an iPhone once and it was my life. You know, at the time it was my three GS and I was at a supermarket and I just like sat down on break and stood up and it was gone. I couldn't find it. Went to customer service. The whole thing for days circled the parking lot. Look, <laughs> they keep checking back with, so did anybody turn this in that kind of a thing? And it's, it was just gone. And, um, that was before like find my iPhone and all this other stuff could be like activated normally and pay like a hundred dollars for it. So I didn't. And uh, yeah, very sad. You just feel like part of you is gone, which is how Harry feels about his Nimbus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like how on one end of the spectrum, 
we have a stuffed animal and the other end it's technological devices <laughs> in Game Boys <laughs> and iPhones. Is that sad? I guess that's probably sad, but it, no. <laughs> I don't the thing is you sound. pour your life into it, you know, yeah. parts of parts you. Of you. Mm-hmm. Well, along those lines, though, I, I think if we bring it back to Harry, his Nimbus 2000 is really one of the first magical devices that he receives and it's a representation of something that he's really good at in the magical world and you know it talks a little bit later on in the chapter about how he's flying kind of one of the old broomsticks in the cupboard uh, for quidditch practice and i think what he inevitably learns is it's not necessarily about the broom it's about the person who's flying on the broom and i think that yeah, that's part of his maturation and development um, throughout, particularly this book. But I was curious why it couldn't have been repaired. You know, we're, we're sitting here, we're talking about restoring stuffed animals. Surely there's magic enough that exists. Uh, Dumbledore could, I would assume, try something on this broomstick to repair well, it. The funny thing is, if the Elder Wand can repair wands, which is supposed to be like so finicky and, and, and precise and, and untouchable, uh, and the Elder Wand can do it. Dumbledore has the Elder Wand right now. Why doesn't he repair Harry's Nimbus? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could just say for the plot. And Harry doesn't feel this way at the time, but one door closes, another one opens. He's going to get yeah. a, a better broom. So he'll look back on this. And like, it does suck to lose it. It was his broom. It's not like getting handed a Marauder's Map. This is his. And for a hobby that he loves. So I get why it's so upsetting for him. But on the other hand, um, it's good that it wasn't repaired because he's going to get a better broom. We don't know that, although it is um, shocking to me how quickly that occurs. But why doesn't Dumbledore replace his broom? It's kind of Dumbledore's fault in many, many ways Mm. that this occurred. Uh, Dumbledore in this chapter is, uh, again, said to be like livid about the whole thing. But it was it's a character's opinion in this book that it's sort of Dumbledore's fault in this chapter that it happened because he's denying the Dementors their their feast. So it just seems like Dumbledore is the first person who gave, he gifted Harry his Nimbus to begin with. Why wouldn't he gift him another? Both Dumbledore and Harry both have the money for a replacement broom. So I'm wondering why this wasn't just a kind gesture um, that was done. Yeah. I wish that we knew more about the magic of broomsticks. I because it does really raise the question of well, if Dumbledore has the Elder Wand, why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't somebody just say Reparo on this? We've seen how that works, and it just makes me wonder if there's something so particular about the magic of broomsticks that when a broomstick is broken, sort of like irreparably shattered into pieces. Would reconstructing it maybe be possible, but perhaps the integrity of the magic that allows that broom to fly safely is compromised at that point. Something like that, that extra piece of information, I think would make this easier to swallow. It's a good point. From a reader's perspective, and and that's I don't know if we want to declare canon on that, but that's my head canon. <laughs> <laughs> I like it, and I say this becomes canon. We have two votes to declare Laura's theory canon. Do I hear a third? I could go with that. That's three. Sorry, Micah, your vote doesn't matter now. <laughs> I declare canon. It's just like 
elections. Anyway. For some reason, the uh, sound effects seem to cut out for me, but that's okay. I would have voted for it anyway. I like Laura's suggestion here. I appreciate your confidence. So the broomstick isn't the only thing that is damaged here in the hospital wing. Harry is going through some tough times himself, not just from the physical side of things, but also from the mental side of things. He's kind of replaying over and over, seeing the grim and the effect that the Dementors have had on him. And it's really a situation where they're playing mind games with Harry. And I thought that Harry comes across as really isolated here, much like he is in Order of the Phoenix, because he's experiencing something that makes him feel different and to a larger extent, lesser than by comparison to his fellow students. He doesn't feel as if he can confide the truth in anybody and he says as much. It's hard to see Harry go through this. He wants to talk to somebody, but he even says he hasn't confided in in Ron and Hermione yet about this. I mean, he's about to have somebody he can confide in, which I think is one of the most tender moments maybe in this book. It's another example of many moments of isolation. Like if we're looking to parallels and ring theory, if you're looking to five when he's really isolated there too. Yeah, there's certain journeys Harry has to go on on his own. I think it fortunately the answer is like coming soon. But he does tend to isolate himself, especially because like even though Hermione and him both had muggle upbringings, his was way worse, obviously. And there's some points it's not a failing of Ron's that he can't like comprehend. But Harry just feels as we all do, no matter how many friends we have or how close we are with them. At the end of the day, we're inside our own head more than more than anything. And I think this is mm. a good way of like, especially when you're a teenager and you're insecure anyway, maybe this is like the beginning of Harry's sort of coming of age and teen angst is that he like worries about himself more than he has in the past. I mean, think about the contrast between this and last year. Last year, he's like, am I the heir of Slytherin? Can I trust the sorting hat? He had to deal with that and the bullying for years or like the whole year. But this time it's like, I fainted, I wasn't able, I wasn't capable. And he's almost even like harder on himself, even though it lasts a a much shorter time. Well, and you add the element of him worrying about the grim. And is he going to have to spend his entire life looking over his shoulder, being afraid that it's going to follow him until he dies? I mean, that's a definite element in here too. For sure. It's one of those things where, as you were saying, Andrew, You can look at Harry self-isolating in this book, but in Order of the Phoenix, he's really isolated by Dumbledore and by extension, Ron and Hermione, because they're taking their direction from Dumbledore, at least early on. So we do have that theme of isolation running through both of these books. You also mentioned there's really um, a tender moment between Harry and Lupin. And if we're to go back a couple chapters, I think they started their kind of mentor-mentee relationship during the first trip to Hogsmeade. And Lupin is now back in class after his episode. Um, and he's he's looking a little skittish. Uh, he's not looking his best. But 
Actually, one thing that I don't have here that I did want to call out was the students were very vocal about their substitute teacher uh, for Defense Against the Dark Arts. <laughs> yeah. And I got to give it up for Lupin being willing to say, well, don't worry about your homework. I will talk to Snape. I wonder that how that's going to go. pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, Snape was doing us doing him a solid, not just by making the potion, but also filling in for him. And then to cancel that homework assignment is I don't I don't know if I agree with that. I guess, on the other hand, he wants to cancel the assignment because it's basically about him. Mm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> As we established, Snape is trying to out him. Mm-hmm. But I think it also raises the question of, OK, who's going to grade this assignment? Snape assigned it while Lupin was out, but Lupin's back now. Are we really to believe that Snape wants this entire class to bring him these essays that he then has to independently grade on top of all of his other work? I don't think Snape ever intended for this to be a, quote, real assignment. I think he's just trying to out Lupin. He's being petty. Mm, Yeah. I can see if he does grade everyone's essays, if they do submit them, he would tell them all the things they missed. <laughs> like just to further out, further trying out Lupin. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And he would like emphasize things that are particularly relevant to Lupin, I feel. Because I'm sure, um, I- I'm sure just like anything, there are probably signs and symptoms that some werewolves experience more than others. So I could definitely see Snape harping on some of those points to drive it home. Such a what jerk. What a guy. What a guy. <laughs> Ultimately, Snape accomplishes what he set out to do. From this moment yep. forward, Hermione does know that Lupin is wolf. Important to note that she, in fact, did her homework and it was already done. <laughs> surprise, surprise. What a shocker. But much like later on in the chapter, this part of the chapter is a major info dump. So Lupin gives us information about the Dementors, about Azkaban, and we also get two really important reactions that are easy to miss. One is to a mention of Lily, the other is to a mention of Sirius, but I think let's start with Dementors, and Lupin tells us that Dementors are amongst the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Harry is still searching for answers as to why the Dementors affect him over really anybody else. Now, we're not saying that the Dementors don't have an impact. I'm sure that other students, professors feel their presence, but Harry more so than anybody is really being impacted here. Yeah. And Harry presses Lupin. He says, why did they affect me this badly? And then Lupin says, and this is where the tender moment really is. um, Lupin says, it has nothing to do with weakness. The Dementors affect you worse than the others because there are horrors in your past that the others don't have. And right after this, the next line just goes, a ray of wintry sunlight fell across the classroom, illuminating Lupin's gray hairs and the lines on his young face. And I felt like what Lupin just says kind of hangs there for an extra Mm. moment. I love there's kind of a beat to pause to reflect on that. That's why I find this such a a tender and really nice moment. And I think it's also important for Harry because he's like, oh, wow. Okay, good explanation. But also he gets me. He knows I've been through a lot. 
And I think that was probably a very validating moment for him. And in this moment, we see a relationship between the two forming. Yeah. And it says something about Lupin uh, that he has Harry's confidence in this way because Harry came straight out with his insecurity. He was able to say, why do they affect me more? Um, It's been on his mind, but he's the person that Harry asks, not at all expecting kind of the response, which Lupin thoroughly like prevents Harry from feeling bad about it. But yeah, it's it's real good stuff. And I think that's what allows Harry to really open up and talk about how what he's experiencing when the Dementors actually affect him, the scream that he has now figured out is his mother from the night that Voldemort killed his parents. And when Harry confides this information to Lupin, it says Lupin made a sudden motion with his arm as though he had made to grip Harry's shoulder, but thought better of it. And I wondered, should we as readers have read more into this moment than just a concerned professor for a student? Again, I think this book does a really good job of uh, throwing us off the scent because Lupin is established from the very start of this book as someone who has a really high EQ, um, is extremely empathetic and cares about his students, their well-being, their education, their practical abilities to do defense against the dark arts. So this is very much in character of a professor like that. So I don't think that we're intended <laughs> to read more into this than what it says on the page. But to your point, Micah, this chapter is such an info dump and we get so many pieces of the puzzle of this mystery in this chapter. In this same conversation, um, when they sort of turn to talking about Harry's broomstick, Lupin mentions that the Whomping Willow was planted the year he came to Hogwarts. Yep. Huge hint. We don't get the why. (laughs) Yeah. We know the when. Just a coincidence. Right. You add that in with knowing that Hermione finished the essay, so she knows Lupin's secret. A little bit later on in the chapter, we find out about Harry and Sirius, or excuse me, James and Sirius being best friends in the same chapter as Harry gets the Marauder's Map. And uh, just to add to that, the secret passage under the Whomping Willow, that there uh is one, that it goes to Hogsmeade. Hmm. Here are the puzzle pieces. Uh Uh-huh. It's all here. (laughs) We just have to put it together. Yeah. Yeah. But I I often wonder why Lupin in that moment didn't comfort Harry. Do we think it's just his own insecurity? Boundaries, maybe, that he's set with himself. Yeah. And maybe he's not ready to come clean with the truth about his past relationship, both with Lily and with his, with James. That That's the other thing I think as far as, because Lupin probably also has a great deal of guilt for being James and Lily's friend and not being able to protect them. Maybe he's hard on himself for not seeing that Sirius was a bad person, et cetera, et cetera. Like maybe the reason that he's preventing himself from Harry is due to guilt maybe yeah. Dumbledore said, don't give him too much information too. <laughs> yeah. So he could be withholding. We know Dumbledore likes to withhold and wait for this certain time. I mean, if you were just to have like completely let everything out right here, 
what does that do to Harry in this moment too? I think he's also trying to protect him like Dumbledore. But what better moment than Harry? I understand Harry's very vulnerable in this moment, but he's also being very candid with Lupin. He's opening up to him about something that I don't think he's spoken with anybody else about to this point. Well, and I think it's in the previous scene that we had with Lupin where he came across him during Lupin's like convalescence, but Harry was going to mention the dog and he didn't. And uh, that absolutely would have uh, piqued Lupin's interest and, and shown Lupin that there was an active presence that's trying to seek Harry out and he would know who. Um, it's it's funny what little who has the pieces of the puzzle and who doesn't. Eric, I'm glad you mentioned the dog because Sirius is brought up in this conversation between Harry and Lupin. And what's talked about is how, in fact, Sirius could have gotten past the Dementors. And the first mention of Sirius, though, it's noted that Lupin's briefcase slipped from the desk. He had to stoop quickly to catch it. And to Laura's point earlier, this is one of those blink and you'll miss it type of moments. And maybe a misdirect of sorts where, oh, Lupin, he's looking a little ragged. He, you know, he dropped his briefcase, not paying attention to what Harry's saying. But we can read much more into this. I we certainly so. can. <laughs> Do you think Lupin intentionally bumped his, his briefcase so it would fall off his desk and kind of create a distraction <laughs> in the conversation so he could be like, oh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would think he could keep it together a little better than this. So yeah, it could very well be on purpose. Yeah, I, I think we're meant to believe that Lupin has a really good idea of how Sirius is getting past the Dementors. Yeah. He's just not willing to share the information, which speaks to the bond of the Marauders, which yeah, I know we're yeah. going to talk more about. And I think it's important uh, to note, I can't recall a chapter before now where the four Marauders are mentioned by name but we obviously don't know that they are the Marauders yet. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Because we're spending time with Remus here. Sirius is mentioned. And then James and Peter are mentioned later on in the chapter. What better chapter than the Marauders map to include all four? What better oh, chapter? that's so good. <laughs> we do also get some more information about Azkaban. We've obviously heard about it in prior books. But Lupin lets us know that it is a fortress set on a tiny island way out to sea, but they don't need walls and waters to keep the prisoners in, not when they're all trapped inside their own heads, incapable of a single cheerful thought. Most of them go mad within weeks. That sounds cheery. Yeah. It makes <laughs> me place. wonder if Azkaban is too harsh a punishment, honestly. There's like no middle ground. And it's curious, actually... Do all criminals go to Azkaban? Because, you know, if you shoplift, that seems like a uh, tough <laughs> go of it to have to Sentence, spend yeah. uh, a couple weeks with a Dementor for doing that. I mean, we've all shoplifted here, right? Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. I will we'll save I'll that, take that for, as a yes. for, a, for a bonus. <laughs> for a bonus. <laughs> if you... <laughs> I will say, if you compare Azkaban to other uh, 
penal um, places in the in the Wizarding World that we know about, mostly from Fantastic Beasts. You have the one beneath Makuza, uh, where there's like that goop uh, that's gonna seriously harm you, and then you have like the uh, the gulag thing uh, that Newton and Theseus have to escape from with the giant uh, manticore. Is it so? None of them are very good. And Nurmengard, which we see in uh, Secrets of Dumbledore. Yeah. Yeah. So so all the prisons are just horrible and um, primitive, I guess. Yeah. It's extremely medieval. And to your point, Eric, there's just no middle ground here. It seems like the wizarding world is not pro uh, rehabbing people or or maybe giving people who deserve a second chance a second chance. Uh, it does raise the question of what happens when you're a petty thief? Like, if you're a Mundungus Fletcher, do you really deserve to go to Azkaban? Is that the right place for you? Right. I wonder yeah. if they just put people under house arrest for anything oh, like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or add it to their record and three strikes. Three strikes and then you go to Azkaban. <laughs> That's how it works. So before this part of the chapter wraps up, Lupin does agree to teach Harry how to fight off the Dementors. And I think he begins to show a real level of trust in Harry here, viewing him more as being a peer as than as being a student. I think they, yeah. they definitely, this is their second kind of powwow mm. in this book. And mm. you can tell that they're really connecting. There's a clear, it's not just teacher student. It, it goes yeah. beyond that. Yeah, Lupin feels bad, clearly, that Harry was feeling bad about himself. And Lupin agrees to share the knowledge of how to defeat Dementor or how to, you know, keep him at bay. And it really makes makes me question. I, I understand the Patronus lessons that are coming are difficult for Harry, and he doesn't quite match them right away. But certainly by the end of this book, he's he's got it down pat. And Harry, in just two years' time, is able to teach the entire Dumbledore's army group how to do full Patronuses. So it really raises the question for me, if Lupin is a, I understand Lupin's like an above average teacher, sure. But if Harry can do it under Lupin's like uh, tutelage, then how difficult, like it just continues to astound adult wizards that Harry can uh, conjure a full Patronus. He gets, this point is brought up multiple times, especially in the Wizengamo meeting. But like, I think that it must mean that people just haven't taken the time on mass to learn the Patronus charm for how helpful it would be, because it seems like if you have the right knowledge, you really can do this amazing thing and ward off these awful creatures. So yeah, it might be helpful, but how often do people need this? Hopefully never. Like, sure, maybe it's a good protective spell to learn in school, I guess, but it's also one... Maybe they don't want to think about whether it's the teachers or the students because it's such a like dark part of the wizarding world. Mm. Maybe they just don't see it as a priority unless absolutely necessary. I can see them shying away for darkness. What they don't know is that isn't this what uh, the author was uh, hinting at was a, a form of communication that the Order of the Phoenix would have that's better than the Internet, she said, or, or comparable to the Internet. And it ended up being the messenger function of Patronuses where you can send them to your friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so mm. so I feel like if the Wizarding World knew that they could have instant messaging, uh, they would invest in learning and teaching the Patronus charm to people. <laughs> to your point, though, Eric, 
wouldn't this have been a great year to teach students how to cast a Patronus at all levels? Just given the fact yeah. that they have Dementors floating around That's their school. That's a great question. Yeah. Sounds and, like a security nightmare to me. Well, and the people of Hogsmeade, well, <laughs> which we're going to get to in a moment, Hogsmeade is regularly being searched like actual Dementors in the village uh, on a nightly basis. So I wonder if the residents there are taught or offered to be you know, taught the Patronus charm. Or they just have to go hide in their room. Yeah. With a lot I mean, of light. What if one gets too close? They Like, they're in serious trouble here. I think what they do is they just have floodlights down the main street in Hogsmeade, and at a certain time, they just turn on so all the Dementors run away. There you go. Uh, Honey Dukes is about to run out of chocolate real fast. Yeah, that's why they have to keep so much on hand. I mean, we see the the ministry uh, advisory telling people to be home by dark because that's when the Dementors are searching. So the ministry is basically saying, hey, do all your business during the daytime. Best way to stay yeah. safe is to stay home. Starting to sound like a security nightmare. Security nightmare. It's a solution that's not a solution. It's very fudge. It's like, oh, just don't yeah. go outside yeah. in the place. Band-aid. Don't go outside in the place where you live at night. That's cool. So let's move into the second part of this big chapter. And this is just one of the more fun moments, I think, uh, in this book in particular. And Harry, once again, unable to go to Hogsmeade. It is Christmas time. How dare the, st- the professors not let Harry go? Talk about really messing with his mm-hmm. mental health. Uh, you, you'd think they would have come up with a solution by now to get him to Hogsmeade, especially because later on in this chapter, we see how many professors sitting around a table at the three broomsticks. They couldn't have accompanied him. Come on. Yeah, let Harry sit w- with the three or four of you and and chat about what you're talking about. Clearly, they can unwind and that be That won't irresponsible. be a mental health nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, in come Fred and George to provide Harry with the Marauder's Map. And th- this actually reminded me of the last chapter when they were – you know, visiting Harry, talking him up, making him feel really good about himself. It's clear that Fred and George have a strong relationship with Harry, that they almost see him like a brother. And to me, this is one of those moments where it really comes through. Yeah. I I, I like the love that they show Harry in this chapter by doing this. They They're giving up something that they will no longer have. So that because Harry's need is greater than theirs. What amazing insight. And they don't really need it anymore. They know the school well. <laughs> Look, I mean, I still give them credit, but like they could probably borrow it from Harry if they wanted to. It's not like they're totally parting with it never to see it again. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the 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 type of tactics that like what Fred and George would have used the map for their usefulness is gone. They aren't looking to see where someone in particular is at any given moment anymore like say they wanted to prank somebody i was thinking of them throwing snowballs at coral in year one like maybe they use the map to like find where coral was to go and do that but largely their antics are over they already know how to go to the kitchens they already know how you know where all the passageways are it's true that that harry right now is in need of something like this and they themselves just aren't anymore i I think it goes beyond the fact that they're thinking of harry 
and that they know that he's in a situation where he's going through a tough time, right? As I said, they just visited him in the hospital wing. He's just getting out. He can't go to Hogsmeade for the holidays with Ron and Hermione. And it's the thoughtfulness factor that Fred and George think, hey, we could help Harry out. Um, But the question begs, is this a reckless decision as we see Fred and George make many a time? Or is it just helping a friend in need? I don't see what's dangerous about it. I mean, it, it just it's a map. Sure, it shows all the passageways and it shows you where everybody is, but I think it's more dangerous for other people, not the actual user of it. Unless it's also like not healthy to know where everybody is at all times. Right. Mm. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I'm looking at my snap map right now. I know. <laughs> uh <laughs> Pulling up that Find My Friends app. Yeah, I don't share my location anywhere, and I would encourage people to do the same. Yeah. Well, even if you don't share your location, uh, we could have a whole conversation about smartphones, right? But um, I think just keeping in mind the context of what Harry just dealt with last year with Tom Riddle's diary being one of those objects that Mr. Weasley mentions, you shouldn't trust anything that can think for itself. If you can't see where it keeps its brain, there's, I think, a reason for Harry to be cautious in this moment. But he does very quickly recognize the fact that Fred and George have been using it without consequence for mm. years. Um, so we're, you know, I think intended to place more trust in this than we would say like a Tom Riddle's diary. But it's a good thing to be cautious about something like this. To Micah's question, I think, is it just doing something kind or is it doing something reckless? I would say, why can't it be a little bit of both? Yeah. Both. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the 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 true judge of whether or not it's a dangerous or reckless item to me comes in the fact that not just that it has the passageways of Hogwarts on it, which could is a security nightmare <laughs> or a minor one at the very least. But um Harry, who the map does not know, within five minutes of him holding it shows him not only where the passageway with the humpback witch is, but there's a little speech bubble. I always forgot about this. The little speech bubble with the uh, incantation, the descendium in order to get through. So it's actively, it's aiding and abetting Harry to to get through. And it doesn't know Harry. Here's the thing. It would be different if Harry had been writing to the map or in some way interacted with the maker's personalities. This map is designed to give people access across Hogwarts, like completely without scrutiny. And that, to me, does tip the needle to this is actually a dangerous artifact because you don't know who's going to use that. I do just want to go back for a second to what Laura was talking about with Mr. Weasley, because I think it's important that Harry has this in the back of his mind and that it comes up and that it's from a parental figure in Mr. Weasley. And I also really like the fact that we're talking about multiple Weasleys helping Harry <laughs> in Aww. different ways in this moment, because they really are his family at the end of the day. Well, mm-hmm. and the Marauder's Map is a family heirloom. His father helped make it. Yeah. It's prongs of Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and prongs. And, and, and 
add Fred and George to the characters that give Harry an unexpected heirloom. Like Dumbledore gave him his father's cloak. Hagrid gave him like the photo book of his parents. And now the Marauder's map is back in Harry's possession too. Absolutely. Fred and George, modern day Marauders. Yeah, I do. I do appreciate that Fred and George have such a prominent role in this chapter that also explicitly calls them out and draws a comparison to the big reveal of James and Sirius being partner troublemaking duo. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you wrote this down, Micah, because Hagrid says it, but Hagrid says as much in this chapter a few pages later that they are they've got a bit of a I forget exactly what he says, but he directly ties them to being marauders adjacent and we know that they found the map but i was curious how they figured out how to work it and this goes to a little bit of what we we're talking about before the map has some kind of sentience to it in, in the way that it aids harry but do we think that the map can sense a kindred spirit in fred and george but even then how would it it did it just like tell them how to use it then right i i tend to think of fred and george being those like mischief makers that uh have endless time endless patience to work out how something like this works obviously it doesn't like not respond if you poke it so i have the vision in my mind of them spending weeks trying any number of incantations statements of Mm. their commitment to mischief i mean I don't think it would have taken Fred and George more than an afternoon to arrive at. I solemnly swear I'm up to no good <laughs> to unlock yeah. the map. I think that's yeah. that's their creed. That's their slogan to begin with. Um, but I do see them kind of brute forcing it. Yeah, I, I think this relates to a question I know we're going to talk about here in a few moments, which is just how does the magic of this map work? It almost makes me wonder if um, if the map does have some kind of sentience. Maybe I solemnly swear I'm up to no good wasn't even the original password for the map. Maybe it just really liked it. Maybe they said that kind <laughs> I of love that. kind of off the cuff as a joke, and the map was like, "Ooh, that ooh." <laughs> <laughs> I'm declaring Laura our declaring canon. <laughs> Person. Yes. Let's play the sound effect. Queen. I'll take it. I declare cannon. You need to re-record it. Actually, all four of us can do it, and we can just put them over top of one another. Get a nice echo in there. Or yeah, whoever it comes up with the idea, then we play that corresponding. Oh my god, a host specific I declare cannon. I'm I'm trembling in my yeah. There's too much of me in these. We we did an entire episode talking about Fred and George, but I think it's fair to say we probably underestimate their magical abilities to some extent. And and yep. that has to do with how they're generally perceived by their peers. Most of their peers look at them as kind of being the jokesters, the, the pranksters. Andrew, to your point earlier about Hagrid, I looked it up. He said that they could have given James and Sirius a run for their money. So mm-hmm. I don't think until we get to them opening up the joke shop, we realize as readers just how talented they are. I mean, they have a variety of skill sets too. They're so versatile. Um, things like the lock picking, the muggle lock picking that most people would just be like, oh, use Alohomora. But there are certain circumstances where that doesn't always apply. So they have a tenacity. They have a desire to learn. Um, and that 
again, with them like taking the time and patience, they they take the time to really learn everything they can learn. They're doing a lot of learning at Hogwarts. It's just not happening in class. (laughs) (laughs) Which is okay. Yeah, Yeah, experience can uh, teach you a lot more. Real world experience can teach you Mm -hmm. a lot more than books can. But books are still important. So stay in school, kids. Stay in school, kids. (laughs) That comment was for the parents. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Marauder's Map. It is a damn impressive piece of magic. And a couple of questions came to mind reading this chapter. The first was, how long did it take the Marauders to make the map? Yeah, like, did they hand draw it themselves? Did they scan it with some device you see in The Legend of Zelda? Like, what exactly (laughs) is going on here? Great, great reference. Based on how Mina Lima designed it, it, and I guess actually how the the chapter art looks from Mary Grand Prix in the U.S. editions, um, yeah, it looks hand-drawn. So maybe they did sketch it all out. Maybe they did go around every nook and cranny of the school sketching it out and i mean what what are map designers called cartographers yes. cartographers or cartomancers yeah i mean uh one of these people it's a good final jeopardy marauders, right there <laughs> one of these marauders could have went on to be a full-time map designer like because <laughs> well, they did a good job i did take a look at wizardingworld.com and it said that the magic used in the maps creation is advanced and impressive which we agree Uh, It includes the homunculus charm, enabling the possessor of the map to track the movements of every person in the castle, and it was also enchanted to forever repel, as insultingly as possible, the curiosity of their nemesis, Severus Snape. (laughs) I love love this. this. We do see that later. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sheer, like, layers of magic that exist on the map is really impressive to me. I like the answer of how we know where people are at any given time is like a homunculus charm but still being able to represent that on a map that's like a live current depiction of the school means that the map needs to like scan the whole school at every moment it's just a tiny little square bit of parchment in fact in the book it isn't the multi-page fold-out thing that they've designed for the movies which i love but it's just a little thing of parchment i guess it like zooms in on where you're looking or whatever pocket map yeah I want to know where the map's personality comes from, because it clearly has one. And it, it, it made me wonder if it's somehow retaining a shadow of the Marauder's personality, similar to how portraits work. Mm. And as a secondary point here, I, I just wonder what would happen if Harry opened the map after learning his dad is prongs and proclaimed, I am your son. <laughs> What would it do? Why didn't that happen? Why didn't it happen? (laughs) Also wanted to just give a shout out to the fact that um, this path to Hogsmeade that Harry takes is also in Hogwarts Legacy and part of a quest. So I was very excited to read this moment again and think back to that path in um, Hogwarts Legacy. I think it's also a nod to, again, how clear it is that the makers of Hogwarts Legacy are fans. Because I'll be honest, I had forgotten how long the passage to um, to Hogsmeade was. And when I played the game, I was like, oh, I can see. They're, dry- they're drawing this out a little bit to make it part of the quest. They're adding um, some ch- little challenges in here. And while those challenges aren't in the book, we see in this chapter, Harry talks about it feeling like it took an hour 
for him yeah. to make the journey. So it is a really long passage. I had completely forgotten about that. To this point, we are going to do a new bonus muggle cast on our Patreon in the next month or so um, about the little details, the Easter eggs that they included in Hogwarts Legacy, because they released a video of 74 Easter eggs and details you may have missed in Hogwarts Legacy. And it is an impressive list. And they pack 74 in a, in an 11-minute video. So it's like they're just firing them at you nonstop. I think I watched it at one and a half speed. So that is... <laughs> I know. You mean 0.5 speed to slow it down? No, no, no. 1.5. So it didn't take 11 oh, minutes. I like the best. Yeah. What what are you in a rush for? They're rushing through it. <laughs> yeah. But uh I, I think we were joking on Slack that I probably knew fifteen percent of and you agreed, right, Andrew? Same. Yeah. I I I, I felt kind of dumb and then you sent that message. I was like, <laughs> okay, cool, I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I totally agree about the passage to Honeydukes. I was just expecting you go into the one-eyed witch and then all of a sudden it would load you in the basement of Honeydukes, but that was definitely not the case. So again, just huge kudos to the creators of that game. So Harry ends up inside of Honeydukes and he uh, surprises Ron and Hermione who are uh, you know, having some fun in Hogsmeade. And I do like the fact that Harry says that, you know, because in the movie he uses the invisibility cloak, but he's not using the invisibility cloak. Yeah, he cloak. doesn't have it. He didn't think to bring it. That's exciting to me. And mm, risky. I do like the fact that he thinks, well, you know what? There's so many people here. Nobody's going to notice me. And that's, for the most part, what happens. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Do, do other people know that he's not allowed? So, I mean, that makes him further invincible. Right. Yeah. I, I I would assume that maybe some people know that he's not allowed to go to Hogsmeade, but I don't know if it's... Or they just assume, oh, he got permission, finally. The Gryffindors know, because didn't Dean Thomas offer to forge the signature? So, like, a few, oh. a few oh, of them know, yeah. but, like, the, the close, you know, friends to them. I don't think Draco's yet made fun of Harry for not having a a, a permission slip, so maybe it's possible the Slytherins somehow missed this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, all of Harry's friends know snitches get stitches, so they're not going to say anything. <laughs> um, and they're probably happy that Harry got yeah. out, got to go. Yeah. So they're like, okay, cool, whatever. Good for you. On with my day. Right. It's a very Gryffindor thing to go anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's just fortunate that he doesn't run into any of his Slytherin nemeses, although he comes close when his uh, professors come into the Three Broomsticks. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione debate using the Marauder's map and the dangers that it poses with Sirius Black on the loose. The joke there is Sirius knows the map already anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't really matter if it ends up in his paws or yeah. not. Just yeah. like Fred and George. He already knows. <laughs> but it is Hermione who gives the line in the book that Sirius could be using one of the passages on the map to get into the castle. It's actually not a bad thought so do we think that this map is in and of itself a security nightmare yes it, yes um but harry's counter argument to hermione saying that he should hand it into mcgonagall is actually very good that by turning it in filch would know it was stolen and then it could potentially reveal 
Fred and George gave it to Harry and that's just, yeah. you know, it opens up a can of worms yeah. that's not worth it. Right. And I think that's where Hermione takes a bit of a step back because she realizes that it's not just going to potentially get Harry into trouble. It could get Fred and George into a lot of trouble too. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fun that they win this argument that Harry and Ron win here because she gets her revenge Hermione does with the firebolt coming up (laughs) this is also one of those tough moments for Ron too because Ron asked the question why they never shared the map with him so it almost feels like Harry's a more important person to Fred and George than Ron is himself that insecurity is based on real events and I kept thinking that too of like when they confide in Harry and they give him this thing like Ron, I think, knows deep down that Harry would give him access and he'll have access to it. But it does beg the question, like, do the Weasley twins like Harry more than they like Ron? But are you talking about just like telling Ron about the map? Because Harry needs the map. Yeah. Ron never needed the map. And I'm sure Fred and George assume that Ron is going to benefit from Harry having the map. Yeah. Also, if they had given Ron the map... That would have opened a whole can of worms because it would have opened it one night when he was laying in bed and seeing Peter <laughs> Pettigrew was in bed with him. They save him the trauma. <laughs> They've actually been doing him a huge favor in therapy bills. Yeah, I also think they, they're probably in the back of their minds saying we can't risk getting into any more trouble with mom. So if we give this to Ron and he gets caught, it's on us. Yeah. Yeah, but especially because anyway. we get a few of those stories of like the acid pop that burned a hole through Ron's tongue, you know, all these other things oh, they've given. Ron. And there's a different, a definite difference between Fred and George in terms mm. of behavior. And again, we did an entire episode on that. We can link to it in the show notes. But it is kind of ironic, Harry's response to Hermione, because he says, Sirius can't be getting in through a passage. There's seven secret tunnels on the map, right? Fred and George reckon Filch knows about four of them, and the other three, one of them's caved in, so no one can get through it. One of them's got the Whomping Willow planted over the entrance, so you can't get out of it. Okay. And the one I just came through, well, it's really hard to see the entrance to it down in the cellar, so unless he knew it was there... Welp. Yep. Laura writes in all caps <laughs> here in our doc. <laughs> it's like Harry knows. He just doesn't want to admit it to himself. It's the convenience factor that's uh, that's uh, kind of taking effect here. So Three here comes the, the big the big broom, the big the big reveal. So Harry, Ron and Hermione are inside of the three broomsticks. They're having some butterbeer. And all of a sudden, the teachers show up. Ah. Plus the minister for magic. No, they're going to see us. Yeah. So very wisely, Hermione moves a Christmas tree in front of them. <laughs> Here's Thank God it's Christmas time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What would she have done otherwise? Here's the most beautiful thing about like my headcanon here uh, for the three birds. Like Rosemarida, the proprietor of this uh, place, should know that there's actually more tables behind where the tree, like the, the room doesn't end at where they've placed the table. She should know that that table's askew. But my head, yeah. ca- my head canon is students move stuff around all the time. Like, have you ever saw like a student center and then the teacher, the, the tables are put together like different than how the cleaning crew has to then go back and move them at the end of the day? I feel like maybe, maybe that happens often enough that that's why nobody questions the 
the tree being where it is. Yeah. Well, and and even setting the tree aside, it's still a public space they're speaking in. Yeah. <laughs> having a very sensitive conversation in. But they're all drinking, right? I, we see this a few times throughout the books where the teachers and, and the other adults, they they get a little um uh, a little Slush. loose with the information they share <laughs> when they're drinking. Doesn't McGonagall complain about Hagrid telling the whole pub something or another in this yeah. chapter when they first sit down too? So like they're all guilty of this. To your point, Laura, the first that comes to mind is Slughorn in Half Blood Prince. Mm. Mm-hmm. In Hagrid's hut, he reals the truth about Horcruxes, and because uh, he's a little tipsy, Hepzibah Smith has to be buttered up a little bit um, before she divulges her secrets to Tom. And Dumbledore uses it on the blanking on oh, the woman's name Mrs. at the Cole orphanage. Oh, at the orphanage, Mrs. Cole. Oh wow, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot alcohol in this <laughs> story. We didn't realize yeah. it. <laughs> oh man, and Winky's an alcoholic. Trelawney's an alcoholic. Oh my goodness. This happens to Hagrid all the time. God, there's, uh-huh. there's even a mention of McGonagall being so tipsy at Christmas one year that Dumbledore gives her a kiss on the cheek and she just blushes bright red, mm-hmm. which is very out of character for her. She's normally super stoic. So, yeah, I mean, listen, uh, grownups got to have fun too, you know? It's Christmas. These people are surrounded by children all day. <laughs> they work for Dumbledore. <laughs> they, they work in a place that's just a nonstop security nightmare. Yeah. 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 This is a, an interesting thing about the adaptation into the film is that up in the movie, it's a private room that they go into. Harry has the invisibility cloak and it's a private room upstairs above the pub. That actually makes more sense. The, you know, because what they're discussing is like things that are not very well known, things like the Fidelius mm-hmm. charm, all this other stuff that makes more sense. However, also in the movie, Harry's alone here. Ron and Hermione are there with him and they're hearing the facts <laughs> as it occurs. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what happens after he was where, that friend where Dan Radcliffe <laughs> delivers his worst line of the entire yeah. Harry Potter series. Sorry, the Razzies were right on this one. Oh, it's, yeah. It's awful. But Listen, like, I don't blame him. He was like 14. He's going through some stuff. <laughs> yeah. I blame Alfonso Cuaron. But yeah, the decision to isolate Harry, the decision to have him come and tell Ron and Hermione then later is sad because the actual telling then happens off screen. Whereas here, they're point for point as shocked as he is. And the more they know, the more they can support Harry in going through this. So I like that it's all three of them together in the book. Yeah. What I like about this, too, is just the cast of characters that are sitting around the table. This is only something you could get in a book or hopefully in a TV adaptation. Ooh. Wink, wink. But you also just get a better sense of the personalities of certain characters that you otherwise don't spend a whole lot of time with, right? So it's McGonagall, it's Fudge, it's Hagrid, it's Flitwick, it's Rosamerta. And we get a lot of info. So I'm just going to run through top line, the info that gets dumped in this conversation, and we can talk all about it. So we learned that James and Sirius were besties. (gasps) We learned that Dumbledore had a network of spies, but one in particular that tipped him off about the Potters being on Voldemort's hit list. The Potters used the Fidelius charm, and Sirius was their secret keeper, or so we're led to believe. Sirius is Harry's godfather, and Peter Pettigrew, the third wheel, confronted Sirius 
and was blasted to smithereens. All right. Wow. James and Sirius were besties. And so begins a thousand fanfics. Yeah. What of them like being friends? <laughs> yeah, I just and just yeah, of Hanging course, out. and or more. <laughs> and of course, we eventually got that 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 mini story on on a postcard, right, about their adventures. I love that so very much. It's probably that was my sold for charity. Thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's so good. But here's the thing. As overt and direct as this information is believing, the chapter still leans super hard into Sirius being the bad guy, which makes the reveal at the end so much uh, richer and better. Um, so, like, we're, we're coming from this chapter, coming away from it, going, we finally have the full story, Sirius is evil, only to have the rug, rug pulled out from us further. And I love that about this book. Just the main mystery and reveal is so well done. But then there's subtle things happening, too, in all of these stories. Like, I picked up, uh, Madame Rosemary is like, Sirius Black, I still can't believe that that he of all people, I would have thought he was the last person that would ever go to the dark side. How does Rosemary have this opinion of Sirius Black? Like, how well could she have possibly gotten to know him when he was a student? And I think that that actually shows if we follow that back through time, Sirius was very outspoken about his family about his 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 family's pure blood mania how they sided with dark wizards more often than not and so it was well known this is this is like a hint in book three that Sirius black really hated his lineage and really hated dark wizards and since we know he's innocent from future books it was at this beautiful little nuance of madame rosemary just sticking up for him and just being like mm-hmm. yeah he was totally anti-evil yeah, and don't we later learn that Sirius uh, either got kicked out or just chose not to go back to his family's home, and so yeah. he ended up spending his summers at the Potters? Yeah. It could be that Rosmerta knew that. That's true, too. Because she knew how yeah, we, close they were. Ugh. We don't get a whole lot of evidence that suggests, in, in at least in this very small conversation, that suggests that Sirius would have turned against James because for for everything that we know they were super close and there's no reason here that that Sirius would go over to Voldemort we're not given anything tangible no as far as I can tell it's one of those things I guess where the misinformation is repeated enough times people just accept it as fact yeah and Dumbledore himself signed off on it right you have like the the normal stops you'd use for like scrutiny and verification, like Dumbledore himself was like, oh yeah, I wasn't the secret keeper. Um, so there's been some key facts withheld, I think, and we do learn at least there's some explanation given as far as why Lupin hasn't told you know Dumbledore about the Animagus thing, why it wasn't well known, maybe even to Dumbledore that Sirius wasn't the secret keeper, that it was Peter. You know, we'll talk about all those things in the chapters in which they occur, but I like that there's at least some explanation for why these key details were left out from these people. So everyone does, yeah, believe that the most shocking mm-hmm. thing that could have happened, James's best friend betrayed them. And what I found so interesting here was there was a moment where Fudge um, says to Rosmerta, who is really intended to represent the general population of people who don't have a ton of context about what happened with the Potters. Um, He says, you know, most people don't know the full story. And he goes on to talk about Sirius's betrayal as Secret Keeper. But a couple chapters ago, Malfoy definitely seems like he knows something more 
than Rosmerta does. Based on his saying to Harry, don't you know, I'd want revenge if it were me. Hmm. So it makes me wonder, does Lucius and, you know, by extension, Voldemort's inner circle know at this stage that Pettigrew was the real spy and that Sirius is therefore innocent and uh, unjustifiably serving a sentence in Azkaban, and they're just sitting on that information because they don't like Sirius anyway. Or if Sirius were to walk up to Lucius and be like, hey, sup, would would Lucius turn him in? Or would mm-hmm. Lucius believe that Sirius is, in fact, the informant that he's been imprisoned for being? Yeah, I, it really makes me wonder how much Voldemort's inner circle knows at this stage. Because Voldemort yeah. wouldn't be the kind of person to reveal his sources. He would say, so, you know, somebody has told me that the Potters will be here. We're going to act. He wouldn't say, my dear friend, Sir, you know, my great personal supporter here has told us all. Unless unless they attended the meetings. Like, I don't imagine. Yeah. That's Death what Eaters. I was thinking. If, mm. if, yeah. if in the later stages, if Pettigrew was actually showing up actively to these Death Eater rallies or meetings where he would have been visible to others right See, i don't think that happened it definitely happens later and mm-hmm. Pettigrew wants to take his place at the meetings when he brings voldemort back to a body and he's like i'm the best follower ever there was but i tend to think of based on what Pettigrew says later i tend to think of all of his interactions with voldemort being one-on-one and voldemort like basically tortures him into giving up the position of lily and james do so you think there was so- some good at him at some point that was overtaken yeah, by Voldemort. I, I think I think it would have been I think because it's cowardice that let Pettigrew and self-protection that let Pettigrew uh, betray the Potters. I don't think he would have been like attending all the Death Eater meetings up to that point, like for months and weeks and all that stuff. I think it would have been a very personal one on one kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, I could see Voldemort even threatening Peter, like threatening his family. We get a mention of Peter's mother later or later on in this chapter. Um, so I could even see Voldemort identifying Peter as the weak link and maybe starting to work on him for maybe even years before any of this occurred. Laura, reading the line that you have here, the don't you know I'd want revenge. I, to me, I just read that more of Malfoy knowing that Sirius was responsible for Harry's parents' death. And that's what he's been told by his father. Yeah, I guess what what I feel like is missing here, though, is it seems like the public, based on Rosmerta acting as a a representation of the public, they don't know about Sirius having been allegedly the Potter secret keeper, right? That's not general public knowledge. Yeah, but I guess it was just assumed because they're Mm -hmm. dead so (laughs) and Sirius presumably also killed Peter Pettigrew so just going back to something that I said earlier on that I really liked about this chapter is that in being called the Marauders map we do get time slash mentions of all of the Marauders but one person who is completely absent from this entire conversation and I'm surprised that none of the other professors or participants in the conversation mentioned him was Lupin. 
Like this was a perfect mm. opportunity for Harry to learn that Lupin was the fourth. Oh, and it's just not even called out. That's so interesting. There was just one more round of mead or butterbeer. <laughs> no, that's actually really brilliant. That that piece is not that that needle is not threaded. Specifically, that yeah. needle. I love. But it. But it is in the beginning of the chapter. We just right. don't know it. Right. No, yeah, Lupin yeah. has this huge presence in the Harry of a scene, but in this whole conversation, you're right. It's not like, oh, yeah, and the fourth one was Lupin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't you remember, Rosemerda, that they sometimes called Lupin Mooney? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that weird? <laughs> Wait, why did that Christmas tree just move? <laughs> one little odd and end before we wrap up here. We hit on the seven secret passages in and out of Hogwarts. But the secret passageway that's referenced as being blocked off as of last year, was that a residual effect of Lockhart using Ron's wand? That would be pretty funny. Oh, I love that idea. And one more odd and end before we wrap up this chapter, following up on a discussion we had a couple weeks ago about the concept or at least the name of Aurors not being created at this point in the writing of this series, we get a mention of hit wizards in this chapter. And that, again, goes back to our theory that Aurors hadn't been invented yet, because if Rowling was using the the phrase hit wizards instead of Aurors, eh, seems like she hadn't settled on Aurors yet. So if we are to believe that hit wizards were the original Aurors, we get kind of like a real-time look at the development of Aurors right here in the writing. Okay, let's move on to MVP of the week. I'm going to give it to Hermione and the Christmas tree she moved for allowing the trio to hide as they overheard all of this info from the adults. I'm going to give it to Dumbledore, of all people, for hiding the secret entrance to Hogsmeade under the Whomping Willow. Classic. Very great move. Yeah, I'm going to give mine to Fred and George for introducing us to a fan favorite magical item, the Marauder's Map. And I'm going to give mine to the three broomsticks where the info dump happens. <laughs> the whole the whole establishment gets MVP of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if you have any feedback about today's episode or the chapters ahead, you can send an owl to MuggleCast at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. You can also send a voice message. Just record it using the Voice Memo app on your phone and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is one nine two zero three muggle That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. And next week, we will discuss Chapter 11 of Prisoner of Azkaban, The Firebolt. And now it's time for some quizage. Last week's question, in what school year of theirs did the Weasley twins obtain the Marauder's map? The correct answer was their first year of Hogwarts. They got a really great first year present. Uh, Correct answers were submitted. We have wonderful assortment of funny usernames again, including Fruit Loop Thief. French Lee Jordan, Deathly Marshmallow, Absolutely Confused Wizard, a Moderately Mediocre Mandrake, uh, Mandrake, a Small Ink Figure Crossing the Great Hall Managing Some Mischief, a Furry Little Problem, Buff Daddy's Daughter, Faith Hayall, Hufflepuff Gangster, or Gangstar, actually, Marauders for the Win, Professor Micah Bins, 
and Quizich fan Dean and use of comma. <laughs> wow. Clever. Everybody's well so done. clever. Everyone's real clever. Uh, and here is next week's question. What date is set for the ministry's hearing with Hagrid and Buckbeak? What's the date? He gets letter correspondence and the date is stated there. Submit your answers to us on the Quizich form on MuggleCast.com website. Click on Quizich at the top main nav or go to MuggleCast.com slash Quizich. And as a reminder, Micah and I will be at LeakyCon in Chicago this summer uh, from August 4th to the 6th. Listeners interested in registering for the con can please visit LeakyCon.com, enter code MUGGLE during checkout for a 10% discount. We are finalizing our panels, and uh, there is definitely a plan to do a MuggleCast listener meetup at some point over the weekend, though it is also Lollapalooza weekend, so that'll be crazy. Um, But we will be hosting a few panels, and it's going to be a great time in Chicago, so if you're in Chicago, the Chicago area, or have never been to Chicago and wanted to visit, consider attending LeakyCon and come say hi to us. All right. And I mentioned free trials now available at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Definitely check that out. But if you're an Apple Podcast user, you can actually support the show through the Apple Podcasts app for just $2.99 a month. You can receive ad-free and early access to MuggleCast. Patrons do receive more benefits, but we know some of you might prefer supporting us via Apple. It might just be a little easier. So check that out. No matter how you support us, we really appreciate it, whether it's financially, whether it's by reviewing the show, telling a friend, continuing to listen. We appreciate it all. Another way to support us is by following us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. So that does it for this week's episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. I think it's now five o'clock in London, so (laughs) we'll all head to the pub. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye. y'all.